Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. Man, oh man, it's been a crazy week. We had a live podcast, which I think went pretty good. We'll do those uh, probably every quarter. Uh, on today's episode, we've got uh, stories about French guys, BRMs, and magazines. So uh, today's episode is going to be Stefan Sanzi, and he's a f- automotive journalist that's worked for Hot VWs and VW Trans and Super VW. So he's been around quite a while, been in the VW scene over 30 years, and he's going to be our guest today on the podcast. One thing I did want to chat with you guys about is... I need you guys to share the podcast. Make sure you guys get out there, share the podcast with all your friends. If you don't know how to do it, go to letstalkdubs.com on the main page. There's two links. There's actually three links. One link will take you right to my Libsyn site, which has the catalog of all the podcasts on there. The second link is if you're Apple specific. The third link is if you're Android or Google phone. So go on that podcast page, either send someone a link to the page or send them right click on those links, copy and send them to your friends and tell them, get on the stick, listen to the podcast. So we can just continue to keep building our listenership. Speaking of that, I do have some new people that have left reviews for us on our Apple Podcast page. So make sure you guys get on there. Even on the Libsyn page, you can leave reviews and comments. Make sure you guys leave your reviews and give us uh, five stars. Uh, First person I want to give a shout out to is uh, Ten Slim. Ten Slim uh, gave us gave us a review. Uh, Ten Slim said. uh, he called it Dubtastic. Uh, Michelle and Ray called a great podcast for VW owners. Uh, APF Racer said Type 4. He really likes the Type 4 podcast, so we'll be doing some more Type 4 stuff on here. And our final new person that's given us a review is JH16407. So make sure you guys get on there, review the podcast, leave a review, uh, and don't forget to share the podcast. Without any further ado, our interview with Stefan Sanzi. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Today on our podcast, we've got a special guest, uh, an automotive journalist that's been around the scene for quite a while. He's been photographing and writing articles for automotive magazines for over 32 years. Uh, he's published a few books that you've seen out there, Demon Bugs and the California Look Bible. Uh, Stefan Santai is an automotive journalist who's been around the scene for quite a while. Not only is he an automotive journalist, but he's also a Volkswagen enthusiast and he's a member of the DKP Car Club. So I wanted to welcome Stefan to our podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Stefan, I have to, I have a couple of questions that I need to ask you. So I've seen you over the past 20 years. I've been seeing you at all the shows, you know, in passing, just one of the staple people in the background. And I've always kind of wondered because originally you're from France, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I I uh, was born and raised there. Stayed there until 1992, and I moved to uh, to the U.S. Uh, that year. And I've been living in uh, Redondo Beach, which is uh, in SoCal, uh, for last uh, well 20 what is it 27 years, I guess. Yeah. So my question is, I've always wondered how does a French guy get into Volkswagens and then end up here in the States? And then you're an automotive journalist, so it's like. I, I, I'm from afar, from, from my perspective of your story is here's a guy from France, somehow of all the car culture to get into, he gets into the Southern California VW scene that he's passionate about, 
relocates to Southern California as an automotive journalist and then is deeply networked within the scene. So I've always been fascinated as, as kind of how all that came together. So typically in the podcast, what we start off with here always is how did you get into Volkswagens and how did your hobby and passion for Volkswagens begin? Well, it started really, really early. Um, okay, I, I'm going to tell you a, a pretty cheesy story here. Uh, my first, my first word was not uh, mom or dad. It was Atto. Atto means auto in German because nice. it was the first language I learned. So uh, that's how it all started. I was just a gearhead, uh, just as even as a toddler. And um, I had, as I said, I had family in Germany. My mom was from Germany, uh, and we had an aunt in Germany, and she drove a. Uh, early on, I don't know exactly what year it was. I don't quite remember. I think it was 65. And after that, she had another bug, and it was a, what they call in Europe a 1302. That's the uh, Super Beetle with a flat windscreen. Yeah. And that car, that car, I remember that car very well. You know, and you're, when you're a kid, uh, I don't know. I just fell in love with the car. It, it's, it was, I guess, uh, I hate using the word cute, but when you're a kid, I guess you find the car cute. Yeah. So that's really how it all started, uh, with an aunt who had a uh, VW Bug, um, and then my brother inherited the, the Bug. Uh, he's eight years older than I am, and um, on my end, um, I discovered the, uh, the American car culture through, uh, through various car magazines from France, and uh, one of them... Uh, specialized in custom cars, and in that magazine they had a bunch of uh, articles about uh, VWs. And little by little they started talking about the Cal look, the California look. And um, I was immediately drawn to the car because, or to the style, because you know I love VWs, and I was always very interested in the uh, the U.S. car culture. Yeah, it was always a dream of mine. Uh, so uh, eventually that's how I uh, discovered VWs. And um, I think my uh, my first bug was in 1987. Uh, by then, I've been reading car magazines and VW magazines whenever I could get one uh, from the U.S. because there was no French magazine at the time. Uh, so that first bug was in 1987. It was a 65 bug, and it was typical of the 80s. Um, think about D-Chrome. Uh, peppermint green, one-piece window kits, and all that good stuff. And it was really low. And uh, I drove that car everywhere um, back in 87, 88. And this is still in France at this time? This is all in France. It, this has all happened in France. That 65 bug, is that a difficult car to get in, in France? I'm thinking in France, Volkswagens are fairly common like they are in the States, or no? No. Um, you know, my first trip to, uh, to SoCal was back in 1985, and I was totally blown away by the number of VWs you would see uh, on the street back then. Right. Um, even I stayed in Tustin, which is in Orange County, back in 85 for, with a family um, as an exchange student back in 85. Yeah. And um, you, you would see catalog bugs everywhere, and I can't tell you exactly where I saw the first catalog bug ever, you know, in the U.S., uh, in testing, driving off the, uh, off the freeway. Um, so comparatively, if you compare France to, uh, to SoCal, you would see some VWs back in the uh, mid-'80s, but not that many. 
Um, what really changed the game is a magazine called Super VW from France. Yeah. Um, by then, um, it started in 1987, and by then I was already a big VW enthusiast. I didn't have a VW yet, but I ended up working for, uh, for that magazine or for that publishing group first. And then as I was working uh, within the publishing group, I found out that they were going to launch that magazine, Super VW. And I asked what, who, who, the guy who would become eventually the editor if he needed help with some articles. And he said, yeah, why not? So, I, so my first article in Super VW was published back in uh, 1987. So that was 32 years ago. So that was your first article was in Super VW. So at, at this time, you're doing photography and you get, on, get in with the magazine or you're writing or how do you get in with the magazine to begin with? Well, I first started as a writer more than a photographer. But the editor of the magazine, Jackie, Jackie Morell, kind of taught me how to use a camera and what to do, how to shoot a car. But way back when, that was, you know, obviously uh, film. So it was, we were using slides. So it was very, very different game. Yeah. And then little by little, little by little, I, I learned uh, to use the camera. And, you know, 32 years later, I am still learning still learning how to take pictures. So, yeah, I started really as a, as a writer more than a photographer. But, you know, being totally fascinated by, uh, by cars and by the uh, automobile press in general, by, by car magazines, that's always, wanted some, always something I wanted to do. So you're back in France. You come, you come to visit in 87. You see cow look bugs, and you're just taken back, and you're like, that's what I, that, that's what I want when you're Absolutely. when you're in France now you acquire 65 bug now back then and are you able to find lowered suspension lowered in kits and wheels and tires things like that for that in France or are those really impossible to come by no it, by then by by the time actually but the car finished it was well semi finished it was already lowered and dechromed and painted that's the smart uh, way but by, yeah but by 87 you could start you, you would start getting uh, parts uh, Unlike, you know, five years earlier, getting a, a set of MP8 spokes, for example, was really difficult because nobody was selling them, for example. Right. Um, so the, the game was quite different by, back, uh, back in the early 80s. But by 87, 88, there were a bunch of stores selling the, uh, the cars and parts. And we started having some really massive events uh, also, um, also in Europe. Uh, one of the biggest one was the bug jam in the uk so uh, back in 88 i drove my uh, 65 bug to the to the bug jam at santa pod raceway which is an old uh, world war ii uh, race um, air airstrip you know military airstrip mm-hmm. um, and that event event that event eventually that uh, that show gathered i guess something like 25 i think one year they had 5,000 cars back in the early 90s wow so that was and it's only air-cooled cars. So that's pretty, that, that's pretty massive. You're knee-deep in the scene. You're working for... Now, at this time, you're working full-time for the magazine. You're not a freelance You're, you're not a freelance writer, photographer. You're a paid employee of that magazine, correct? Well, I started as a freelancer, and I ended up, um, after doing my military service, because that's something you had to do back, uh, back then. Uh, I stayed in the military for a year in the Air Force. After one year in the Air Force, I went to work for a Super VW magazine full-time. So I worked there until 1990, I think 19, early 92, late 91, early 92. Yeah. And then, so that, that was my full-time job for, for a year. And then I had a business opportunity 
A friend of mine had an export. Uh, he had a, I'm sorry, he had a wholesale uh, company in France, and he was selling motorcycle products. And he needed somebody to per- do purchasing from him mm-hmm. in the U.S. because he was buying a bunch of products from the U.S. So he approached me since I knew somewhat how to speak English back then. Yeah. He asked me if I wanted to become his purchasing agent in the U.S. and handle shipping, uh, you know, shipping all the parts. I thought, well, why not? You know, I wasn't married and didn't have, um, you know, I said, well, why not? Let's give it a try. So that's what I did. And um, not knowing, of course, if I was going to stay six months or, or a year or, or six years of my life, it ended up being uh, quite, quite a bit longer than I expected. So, yeah. uh, so I moved there in 1992. And for about eight years, I worked uh, for that company full time, um, except once in a while I would do some articles for mainly Super VW and then a little bit to Volkswagen from the UK. So you would be like their, their, US, their US contributor? Exactly. Yeah, I would be the uh, the U.S. Uh, agent for for Super VW, and so I would cover some events once once in a while. I would co- I would uh, shoot some cars, but the truth of the matter, I didn't do much journalism between 1992 and 2000. Um, then in 2000, the uh, the company I work with in France, uh, my partner had to shut down the company in France. It went bankrupt, oh. so I ended up uh, finding myself without a job, and by then. Um, I wasn't sure what to do, so uh, I talked to my wife, my super supportive wife, and I should mention her. Yeah, lucky. Her name is uh, yeah. Her name is Tanya, and I told her, well, here's what I want to do. I want to become a full-time journalist, freelance journalist, and uh, she said, yeah, why don't you go for it? And she worked harder than ever to pay the bills because the problem is when you work, start working freelance. Uh, people don't realize that, but uh, if, for example, if I do a photo shoot this coming weekend, it's going to pub- be published maybe in you know three months or four months or five months. Sure. And then I get paid maybe you know a month or two months after that. So between the time you shoot the pictures and the time it gets published, sometimes it's six months. Or, yeah. You know, on average, I would say it's about four or five months. Um, so for about four or five months, when I started, of course, it was a little bit difficult because you know there was, uh, you know, there was no money coming in. Yeah, you've got to, you have to start building the pipeline. Yeah, so you you we have you start. It's hard to start. It's really hard to start. Yeah. But eventually, you know, it, it caught up, and I got things rolling. And I, I, I you know, my passion is is VWs, and it always remains VWs. Yeah, um, but um, I've got other interests. I, I like hot rods. I like Porsches. I like vintage cars, and so I was able to start working for other magazines besides the VW magazines. Um, so, of course, back in the uh, early 2000s, I worked with VW Trends, which is no more. But I also worked with VW magazine based um, uh, in the UK, in Japan, in Germany. Um, what else? Really, a bunch of, in Hungary. They have a magazine in Hungary as well. Um, one in Australia, so really a bunch of magazines. So uh, right now, I think I've worked with about ninety magazines wow. based around the world. So that's that's not only VWs, of course, but it's also hot rods and Porsches and vintage cars and and some racing, you know, um, some drift drift racing and stuff like that. So yeah, really a wide variety of um, of, of magazines. So now you now you bring up hot, you bring up VW trends and so there was rivalry hot VWs VW trends and a lot of people 
you know, uh, v- Hot VWs was out first, and then VW Trends right. came out later during the probably during the uh, early '80s. Um, once uh, I'm not sure when the VW Trends first came out, but I'm thinking it was around '77. I think it came out. I think first first issue was '76 or '77. I'm pretty sure it's '77. Yeah, so they, they come out after Hot VWs, and there was always this kind of rivalry. So how can you? explain to me kind of during that time what the rivalry was like I, I do remember one issue and i'm not quite sure what issue it was but i do remember when vw trends was around and hot vw's was there there was one car and there was always like have you been shot for trends no okay then we'll shoot you for hot vw's or it was the race to see which magazine you could get in first and i do remember one month there was one they had the same cover car one month because the guy that's Right, that's right. So I, I think that car was a red Carmen Ghia, if I remember right. Yes. And uh, that's something you should never do, do as, a, as a car owner. Of yeah. course, now we only have one, one magazine in the U.S., so it's not a, not a big deal. But uh, yeah, betrayal. if you commit to one magazine, you cannot commit to the other one. So yeah, yeah, there was always some kind of, uh, of little war going between the other magazines. Um, hot VWs always seem to do better as far as sales as VW Trends. Um, I think at their peak back in the, uh, around 80, I think the peak here was around 87 or 88. So you got to ask the, the guys from hot VWs. They, they'll be able to tell you specifically when it was. Yeah. But yeah, there was definitely some kind of a little rivalry and between the, the magazines. Well, you know, and I, and I remember, and so, you know, because, you know, I'm in the scene at the time and my car, my bus, when it was featured, my first feature car was in 2002. Um, and it was, I think it was 2001 or 2002. And, you know, I was, I was, my focus was like, I want to be in hot VWs. I don't want to be in VW trans. I want to be in hot VWs because, because what was happening at the time, you know, during those years, VW trends was, I think they were changing editors quite a bit. And there was a lot of, Oh yeah. There, oh yeah. There was a lot that. of, so did you work at Trends full time, or you were just a contributing journalist there? No, since, since I, I started, as I said, I started working freelance back in 2000. I think I started working with VW Trends back in 2002, uh, and I stayed there as a freelancer. Uh, I think about three years. I think the last issue was 2005. Yeah. Uh, don't quote. Actually, I can look at that. I've got an extensive library of magazines. Yeah. As you can imagine, I, I, oh. I receive magazines from all around the world every um, uh, every every month. The last issue was March 2005. Wow. So I, I worked there from 2002 or 2003 until 2005 uh, as a freelancer. I used to go there once uh, once a month in the office and uh, you know help help um, shipping the magazine and making sure everything uh, uh, runs smoothly. And so that's something I still do with VWs to this day. I, I really help, um, help the magazine quite extensively. And, and Shin uh, Watanabe and Shin Mukai, Shin Mukai being the owner, um, they've, they've been really good to the, to the scene, and um, they've been good, really good to me too. They're really wonderful people. Yeah, they're great. They're great guys, and and it's really great because, really, if it weren't for uh, the 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 other Shin, uh, he's the one that uh, that is he's the one that purchased the magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so without him, I mean, Hot VWs would be no more, and so, you know, where would we go for VW content? So it's you know, it was always interesting because, 
you know, the dichotomy between VW Trends and Hot VWs, there was always a distinct difference in the magazine. And then they would do things like change the paper quality or change the cover shots and, and all these types of things to try to differentiate the magazines. But honestly, the, the magazines that I fell in love with were actually VW Trends because the 7-Eleven by my house before I could drive, that's all they had was VW Trends. You either had Trends or Hot VWs, but you didn't have both usually at the, huh. at, the at the newsstands that I would go to. And uh, it was uh, it was always VW Trends that I saw there, but VW Trends maybe had two color features, then everything else was like black and white. And you know, oh yeah, you that's know, right, that's right. Is there any any under? Because it would seem weird, like when hot when VW Trends went like out of business, it was like overnight, like boom, the next month done, and uh, no one's around to get that story. What part of that story do you know any part of that story about what happened with vw trends did the parent company just said you know what we're not selling enough magazines we're just going to pull the plug or or what what happened it's uh, i think it's a variety of uh, of it this disappeared for a variety of reasons i think that the bottom line it was advertisement and sales and you know people blame this person or that person but ultimately it's people in suits in office that look at numbers and sure and we look at numbers and, and they say, well, you know, that, that magazine doesn't make enough money, blah, blah, blah. Even though today, you know, uh, they would be probably happy to, to – they would have been able to make it work if they really wanted to. That's the bottom line, even back then. Yeah, and, may, and maybe – I mean, maybe the higher-ups just looked at it as such a niche magazine that it was it really worth, you know, doing – you know, put, getting all that stuff into the magazine or putting the time and effort to kind of rebuild it. Because I think at the time that it goes out of business, you start to see the internet come around and internet media, me, internet media marketing and, and people, you know, if, if, if your goal is to get the newest, latest thing in the magazine, good luck anymore, because there's a thousand pictures of it on the internet before it even goes into your magazine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that, that's a battle for, for a lot of ma- the magazines, you know, where they, uh, by the time sometimes it's published, um, you know, it's, uh, it's it's people say, well, it's old news. But I think where the magazine makes a difference is, you know, the quality of the pictures and also uh, the story and the captions because you're bombarded with pictures on the internet. Uh, right. You know, you go through Facebook, but usually there's no n- nothing. You, you don't know what it's about. So at least the magazine, you got uh, you got you got some contents and you got a lot of captions that tell you what what things are and. I truly believe that it's really important for a magazine to have some captions. Uh, if you want to see a bunch of photos without captions, well, you can uh, may as well go on the internet. You know. Well, you know that, and that brings up a good point because, you know, I think the magazine. You know, there's something there's something different about a tangible publication that you can hold in your hand, and, and maybe it might be nostalgia or whatever. I, I collect magazines as well, so I probably have, uh, you know, not that many, just a few a few hundred magazines. You know. VW Trends, Volksworld. I mean, I used to go get Volksworld back in 1990. I'd go to the bookstore. I think it was mm-hmm. early 90s. I'd go to the bookstore where they had the imported magazines, and I'd go get it because it had these funny-sized pages and all this kind of stuff. And it was just, you know, it was really cool. And, and it was in the VWs, and I like to, I like to really get a good diversified look around the scene. But I think there's something, you know, if you look at Niels with Air Mighty, right? I'd like to get him on the podcast. Soon yes, enough. I do. I, I do know. Yeah, of course. Yes. But, but you look at that, and you would almost think, in the world of media and marketing and things to that extent, a magazine is going backwards in technology. But the reality is, his magazine focuses on quality of photos. You know, absolutely. Yeah, 
and I still think you know the, the future might not be uh, that 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 bright for for the uh, publishing world, but there will always be some uh, some room for for magazines which are high quality. So, uh, you know, I, I believe that car magazines will still be here in maybe a decade or two, uh, but there will be different. It will be maybe quarterlies, and it will be high quality magazines, a little bit uh, like I don't know if you know the uh, the. The Hot Rod World. There is a magazine called the Rose Journal. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it it's a, it's a really high quality magazine. It's it's expensive. It's it's. I think I got a copy here. I think it's about twenty bucks or so. Yeah. It's actually sixteen dollars. Uh, but it, you know, it's not like the old days. Uh, we got a little bit older readership, and I think people are ready to spend uh, more than than three ninety nine on the magazine. And um, so uh, I think they're ready to get from. You know, some quality work, uh, some nice paper. And VW, I don't know if you noticed, but the quality is, is, is better as far as the number of pages for VWs, for example. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, and the paper, now it's, it's, you know, it's what they call perfect bound. It's that square back for the, for the magazine. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, um, you know, it, it's the magazine is going the right direction. We're just sort of talking about VWs here. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, you're talking about just magazines in general. So magazines, to me, serve two purposes. One, especially for, you know, no matter how much you get on the Internet, you're still not seeing everything, and then you can't capture the detail of what goes on at the shows, which the event coverage is really great. But but also, they're, they're a physical time marker of what was cool at the time. One of the greatest gifts I ever got from a friend of mine, my buddy Tom Woodford, he had sent me... He had, he's a Porsche guy, bought a bunch of Porsche parts. He says, hey, I just shipped you something in the mail. And he shipped me 1984 through 1987 VW Trends, like almost a full collection of top-notch quality magazines. And it's like it's so crazy to look at them and look at the parts prices were selling for back then and to look yep. at the cars and the styles and, and the details that sometimes they get lost. And, you know, you can't capture all that stuff in the Internet because the Internet can make, you know, false information seem accurate and and uh, and, and not necessarily state things that are so true. But also these magazines are, are kind of like a like history books to some extent. Mm-hmm. You know, so and I think our I think our culture, the car culture, car guys, we're we are part of the more money than brains people. And, you know, we'll always you know, I, I think my wife has started taking my shirts. And if you if you come by and see me at the at the vote, the let's talk dubs booth, I have my table set up and then I have part of a quilt that my wife makes. She takes all my car show T-shirts. Well, not all of them. She took she takes them 20 at a time and I don't notice and then she wow, she cuts the cool. logos out and then stitches them together like a big quilt, and so I ha- I have that for a tablecloth, but it's but it's like all these pictures. Car guys will go to a car show and spend twenty dollars for a T-shirt because it's like a souvenir that serves a purpose because we'll wear it and we can show that we were there, like the concert shirt or whatever, you know. But I think magazines are the same, you know. The the magazines are another tangible something that you can have when the lights go out and there's no power you just want to sit in your garage and just flip through some stuff or use it for references so i'm a big magazine guy you know i really i really appreciate the magazines i mean the magazines are what got me started what probably ignited the passion in thousands if not millions of people you know from hot rod magazine to whatever that they would see something 
you know, some kid in Nebraska or some kid in France is looking at a California magazine and thinking one day I'm going to be there. That's going to be me and my bug cruising, you know, cruising the PCH or whatever, which it kind of ignites that fire in us. And, and I think, I think magazines will be around for a while because, you know, even the digital copies, there's been a couple of times where it's like, Oh, check us out on digital. And you look at it and you swipe the page but mm-hmm. it's, it still doesn't have that same tactile feel when you're holding the magazine in your hand. And I don't, maybe it could be nostalgia or maybe it's just car guys, but I know, oh, yeah. you know, me, me particularly, I still subscribe to the magazines. I still get, I still get issues and, uh, and, and I really, I really enjoy them. And so speaking of magazines, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you was if a guy's coming out with a car and it's going to be a really nice car. Does it, is it more desirable for you to photograph that car? If he's done his best to keep the car under wraps and he hasn't been putting a build sheet online and he's been keeping it kind of hidden away and he's really doing his homework and kind of, and getting this thing done, reaching out to the magazine saying, Hey, I'm building this car. Here's some pictures of what I'm doing. Is there interest in building it? What's the best way for a guy? Cause sometimes for you guys, you go to a car show and you're bombarded with 700 cars. You're not going to see everything. Right. Uh, that's that's a good question. I, I um I I, I kind of like the surprise, you know, when when all of a sudden there is a car that's been built by a guy, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and it shows up at an event and nobody knows about it. It's it's obviously a big surprise, but um, I don't know. It's um, I, yeah. I would say I would I would personally prefer. You know, looking at a being surprised by a car I didn't even know existed. Yeah. You know, and a good example would be that uh, that square back, you know, with the twin engines, uh, which will be at El Prado this weekend. Oh yeah. Was, was at um, you know all the events last uh, last weekend. Sure. Um, th- that car I didn't even know existed until it, it showed up at, uh, at the SEMA show, and uh, everybody was blown away uh, by by the car. And uh, thankfully, uh, Shin uh, Todd VWs was able to secure the uh, the photo shoot and. Uh, like it or not, that car is absolutely nuts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have cars like that. Nobody knows that it even exists. And then all of a sudden it shows up at one of the major events. You know, what's funny is I, so I talked to the owner for a few minutes because I think, you know, so being a, being a VW purist, you're not going to like it. Being a car guy, I think you're going to like it because <laughs> we get back to the purpose of Volkswagens. And Volkswagens yeah. are a blank slate. You can do custom cow look, German look, German folks look, Nebraska look, whatever kind of look you want with it. You can give it a certain look. So to an extent, the same shape, style, and body of the car is a completely blank canvas. Now, when you step out into gasser world, you're, you're really walking a fine line. Oh, yes, you are, for sure. You know, and, and yeah. the, the car can go from zero to ugly really quick, or you can look at it, and you can appreciate the look. That's what I said to the owner of the car when I was talking to him at the car show. I said, when he mated the twin VW engines together and then front engine mounted them, it was just like, this guy did a little crazy but I believe, like looking at that car and taking into consideration all the things he did, I think in the 1960s, if somebody's going to build a gas or VW, this is what they would do. Yeah. You know what absolutely, I mean? Absolutely, yeah. 
he, he could have definitely missed the mark, but he didn't. Yeah. And that's what I said to him. I said, you know, I, I said to him, I said, you know, you're walking a thin line building this car. People are going to love your hate. He goes, yeah, you know, I knew it was going to be tough, but you know, he says, I just had a feeling I could do it right. And really that is, I think, I think when you see that car, you instantly don't appreciate it unless you really start looking at it. And then if you take in the gasser, if you understand gassers and you look at that car, I mean, that guy, that there's so much work in that car. And yeah. he really did a fantastic job, but it's so great how you can take the same platform. You're going to see 50 square backs at Prado. That one will be there. And that one's going to be the most unique square back. And it might not be your cup of tea, but you've got mm-hmm. to appreciate the work the guys put into it. You know, a couple of podcasts ago, I, I talked about how in the VW scene, we get a little jaded sometimes. I talked about how, you know, my bus, I went to the Huntington Beach show and my bus was parked in the pavilion. And I mean, to me, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm driving this old 18-year-old bus and everybody's seen it and everybody yawns when they see it. And they, they've been there, done that. And then, I mean, people are taking hundreds and hundreds of photographs of it because it's, <laughs> it looks so unique in a lineup of buses. And I think what happens is we get so jaded by... Oh, well, that guy's got a Romech. Romeches were cool, you know, five years ago. Nah, this guy's got a DNS or this guy, you know, we get a little bit jaded sometimes. And so we kind of overlook some of these things where the great thing is when that gasser came out and he was parked right there with America's most beautiful Volkswagens in the lineup, that mm-hmm. because it's there, you you have to go look at it because someone said this car needs to be in this lineup. And then you go look at the car and the guy really went out of his way to do a really good quality job. So, you know, that's what I love about the hobby because there's so many different people with diverse backgrounds and different upbringings that are in the hobby that this one car brings us all together. It, it's There's something to be said about the the car scene, of, of the, the VW scene in general. Is when you think of it, there are some car scenes which have, come and gone if you think of the pickup trucks which were huge back in the uh, 80s yeah. and early 90s and, and and that's that's pretty much gone there's not much left of that nope. uh mini trucks um and then there's the uh the import scene import cars which has which is gigantic i used to cover a lot of those events and it, they were absolutely massive there were hundreds thousands of people and you know crazy cars being built and that scene is is pretty much gone over here in the U.S., but also in Europe, and they, they use one of the best-selling car magazines in France was one of the Tuner magazines, uh, yeah. in, uh, way ahead of other magazines, and, and the same, same I think in the U.S. They, they, they sold very well, and that scene is all gone. But for some reason, this VW scene is still going really strong. I mean, I'm, I'm still blown away. Honestly, I would have never thought 30 years ago, if you, if you asked me 30 years ago, will you be still into VWs in 30 years, I would say, ah, probably not. There probably won't, won't be any VWs left. But then you go to El Prado and you get 2,000 cars or maybe more. You know, it's just amazing. This is my theory on that. If you're going to step into the Volkswagen world, and I kind of talked about in the 80s, because the 80s is when I got into the scene, right? Like late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. The guys that got Volkswagens, usually they're different kind of guys than the mini truck guys. The mini truck guys either had really good jobs and made good money or they had parents that had money. So they bought mm-hmm. a brand new car. They went to the store. They bought brand new wheels. They bought a snug top. They bought a this. They bought, they bought, they bought, they bought. Volkswagen guys usually came from backgrounds where they didn't have a lot of money. 
but they wanted to look cool. And so the desire to look cool and the only option to affordability was to own a Volkswagen, then you were mandated to sink or swim. You had to learn how to fix that car. So the connection, the connection to the car, I think, I think became deeper. It was like you had to drive your car in the summertime with no air conditioning and love it and still look cool. You know what I mean? The mini truck guys, they roll the windows up, electric windows, air conditioning, automatic transmission, like, and, and there was this disconnect between the car because the car was still just a piece of transportation. And I think the difference from inception is the VW scene weeds out people pretty quick. If, if you're not okay with being on the freeway on your back, on your way home from some event, trying to replace a, a, a clutch cable or trying to, you know, fix something that rattled loose or whatever the case is, then VWs are not going to be for you, but it's, oh, yeah. it's part of the story with the Volkswagen. And I don't think, I think if you look at just about, you know, three out of 10 VW guys have the exhaust pipe burn on the inside of their left forearm for tightening the clutch cable while the exhaust is hot and burning it on the header. I mean, like there are these, these battle scars that you get, but it's that it's, it's the same. I think the difference is VW people, they look at a car and they see its soul. Mm-hmm. They see that car sitting there. It's dead. It hasn't gone anywhere. And they're going to put life back in that car. And then when you do that, there's a deeper connection because now it's, it's this part of you because all of your efforts have recreated life back into this vehicle that is now kind of connected. I mean, listen, I might be going way off in a deep UFO land over here, but the reality is, I, I uh-huh. really believe that there's this deep passion and connection to these cars because of the the, the opportunity that we have to revive these cars and to bring that history yeah, back. And, it, and it's all also due to the simplicity of the car. It's really a very simple to, simple car to to play with or to to fix. You know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it one of the things that someone said. Oh, how'd you learn to work on cars? I said, Well, we were broke and we had I, I all I could afford was a Volkswagen so I bought a Volkswagen for $50 and I knew I could make it look cool so I put a couple parking curbs on the front end you know inside the front apron so I could pull the front end down because <laughs> I couldn't afford to lower it I didn't know how to lower it but it's like you start and then it breaks down and then it's like okay what do I got to do how do I fix it and everybody gets the idiot book from the previous owner and you're reading that and you start to figure it out and then you get this le- you get this self confidence that this car just gave you that you can fix it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and I and I think that's yep. why it stands the test of time because it's just like anything else that you can buy, like those comfortable jeans you wear that you've bought them brand new and you've worn them in, and they're worn in, yep. and they're creased, and they've got holes, and they've got that, but they're comfortable. Those are your jeans versus you go to the store and you buy jeans with holes and fade marks and stuff. That's a fad. Oh yeah, absolutely, and. Uh... Yes, yeah, like, like oh, and that's why a lot of the uh, the guys keep their cars for such a long time, you know. Yeah, because well, you know, it becomes a party. I mean, the the, the bull run bus that I have, I remember when I first uh, when I first finished that car. Two years later, I thought, oh, you know what? I might sell it and get something else. Put it up for sale. Mm-hmm. I, had a guy, I had a guy show up to buy it, and uh, I started getting cold feet. He offered me what I wanted for it, and I said, "Give me your number, and I'll call you back." And I never called him back. 
And it was one of those things where it was like, I said, well, what are you gonna do with the car? He says, I'm going to park it at my beach house. And I just thought, no, no, you're not. (laughs) But it was just this, you know, my bus, my bus I found in the middle of the desert that was there for 32 years. Mm. You know what I mean? So uh, if you've seen, you've seen the movie Corvette summer, I'm assuming with, with Mark Hamill, have you seen the movie when he saves the car from the crusher and there's this deeper connection he has, he's willing to go through whatever it takes to get his, get his Corvette back. But he builds it from nothing and builds it to what it is. People always say, oh, you know, man, your bus is expensive. People, those things go for a lot of money now. You know, every bus is a $200,000 bus that everybody sees that doesn't know anything about Volkswagens. And, and they go, oh, would you sell it? And I said, ah, it would take, it would have to be, they'd have to catch me in the wrong mood at the right time for me to part with my bus. Because it's like, it's, it's that one. It's, she's my car, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the connection that I have of, breathing life back into her because i think i think us guys that are into the vintage cars is we look at each car like it has a soul and and the pride of seeing that car back on the road and respect it again is kind of what is what feeds us you know what i mean it's like what keeps us motivated to do that so i think that's you know that's a big reason i believe that the vw scene is more than just vw you know a fad you know and now don't get me wrong it's an evolving scene because as the age and generations of people that are getting into it starts to change you see a change in the styles and techniques and and all those things but it's funny as you start to see some things coming back now you start to see you know the the 80s resurgence now because i've been saying for five years i want to build a car i want to build like a like an 80s car you know Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've got Rossi's on my bus. I've got Rossi's on my crew cab. I've got Rossi's stacked up in my garage because I, I love Rossi's. I think they're really cool looking. And all my buddies give me a hard time about it. But I think that the yeah. 80s. Yeah, I was just going to say, there is some kind of parallel between the, uh, the VW scene and the hot rod scene. You, you, you can see uh, within the hot rod scene, a lot of the guys uh, who are building cars right now are really trying to emulate what was uh, being built back in the 40s or 50s and 60s. And right now we're we're starting to see this happening also with VWs, and, and, and you know guys are starting to emulate what was being built back in the 80s. We're not quite there as far as colors. You know, I don't think people are ready to uh, to have a pink uh, pink bug or something like that. But you know, I, I think you know it, it's it's all all coming back, and I, I can see more cars being built uh, the way they were back in the 80s you know well i i I personally i would love to have a red car with white scallops and a white grant steering wheel and you know like the just the whole look and i met you know listen i've got five cars on deck to build and all of them are starting after i get my split window back but i mean i love them i just i just love the i think i i think you know what i love was the initial standing on the street just seeing one come by and it was funny because the one of the cars that really got me fired up was in my neighborhood there was a white oval window with white window rubber and white eight spokes and i thought huh. it was, i thought it was the coolest thing ever i'm like oh man that car is so cool i can't believe how cool that car is you know what i mean it had limo tinted windows this is the 80s you know limo tinted windows and uh the white window rubber and white eight spokes on an oval window and uh it was just the coolest thing ever but you know it's it's a it's a it's an awesome scene and the people are as diverse as the cars and what's so funny is 
you know, from the outside looking in, it's just like, oh, those bug guys. But I mean, bug guys and bus guys are different. You know, type three guys mm-hmm. are different than bus and bug guys. And I remember I was, I was talking to David Hurd at uh, the Octo Show, and I'm going to be getting David on the podcast here coming up because David's part of the bus history. And it's like, when I debuted my bus, when I, I, I bought my bus in 99, I finished it in 2000. That was, I debuted it at, I think it was the 2000 or 2001 um, mm-hmm. classic. And back then, buses were nowhere as cool as they are today. You know what I mean? And, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and it's funny because I, I was talking to David Hurt about it. I was like, yeah, you know, bug guys were always looked at the bus guys like, yeah, those guys are a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Even though, you know, I was looking at some of the old hot VWs, and I was surprised to see of the, by some of the numbers, uh, um, you know, as far as attendance. They, they, some of the, I guess, soda meets that was before the Octo uh, right. Club. Yeah, uh, some of these soda meets they had up to four hundred cars. I think. I mean, that's what's ri- what was written in the magazine. I don't know if that's true or not. But, no, it's you great. Know, well, but uh, you know, nowadays they're they, seven hundred at the shows. Uh, yeah, uh, the Octo right now, I think uh, they have up to three hundred. So it, it, it's you know pretty pretty close. But already in the eighties, they had four hundred cars at just the bus shows. Yeah, it was a. Uh, I mean, uh, the and the bus guys were just they were just different guys than the bug guys. But oh yeah, yeah. Bus by the bridge, of course. Yeah, that, that's a that's that's a monster event. Yeah, buses by the bridge. There were seven. There was I was bus six sixty nine, and I and I drove in on Friday, and there was people coming in on Saturday. Okay. So wow. we, there was over seven hundred buses at buses by the bridge. Now Octa might be a little bit less because they don't let in bay windows yet. Right. But it's right. funny. Ten years ago, someone couldn't give you uh, an early bay camper. And oh you, yeah, and you would not pay five thousand dollars for it today. You'd pay five thousand dollars as fast as you can for a nice early bay camper. <laughs> you know what I mean? And oh, so, oh yeah, it, it, it's. I I think maybe what happens sometimes is the scene has to change, or as the older cars become less affordable, now everybody's you know moving on to some of the bays because you can't find the splits, and then and and now there's the bay elitists, the early bay and the late bay guys, and the you know, water cooled guys and all that stuff. So the so it's interesting to watch the dynamics and the scene change. But you know, it, it's a it's a great hobby. I love watching the dynamics of it change, and and that's a huge part to what the magazines bring. Like you can definitely grab a magazine from June of 1986 and June of 1992, run through the magazines and see a distinct difference in the way the scenes are, the colors of the cars, the way they're fixing them up, mm-hmm. the details, the the attention, those types of things. So and you've noticed because you're also into Hot rods as well. You you appreciate all the car culture, and so yeah, I do. I do definitely. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I like. Yeah, I guess uh, the bug I, I have it can be considered a, a, a hot rod as well, being a, a Caldo car with a bunch of horsepower. I guess. Yeah. Um, but I, and I tried the the funny thing is I tried the hot rod thing for for a while. I had a. Uh, a rare 1932 Ford for for a couple of years, uh, which I sold it two years ago, I think. Two, yeah, two years ago. And how and was that experience? I, I, it, well, I ended up having that car, which I, I really liked. But the first, for when I 
Oh, I brought the car from France. It's a rare model that was only built in Europe. So I, I shipped it to the U.S., which is really weird because it's a, it's a Ford that kind of looks like a U.S. Ford, but it's not exactly the same model. It's a two-door with suicidal, which they never had here in the U.S. Right. So it, it was intriguing for a lot of people. But um, I ended up having this car and having a toolbox in front of me. And first of all, I realized, okay, I've got the wrong tools. I don't, I've got only metric tools. Okay, so that's one problem. And, and then you're in front of this car and... Well, where do I start? It, it, that car wasn't really me, quote unquote me. You know, yeah. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I, I'm a VW guy, and you know, you you show me a VW, and I'm I'm not super mechanically inclined like a lot of the guys. I mean, but if you give me a long block, I know what to do with it. You know, yeah. I know how to put it in the car, and I know how to do brakes and stuff like that. But um, with that that 32 Ford, I was in front of it. So like, oh, where do I start? You know? Yeah. It's it's a di- it's a different um, it's a different vibe altogether. You know, I've got a I've got a, a little diverse collection as well. You know, I would talk to you earlier about my '65 Riviera, and I've got a '65 Corvair. And as far as American American classic cars, my favorite era is the '60s, bar none. I think in the '60s they built the best cars, the most futuristic looking space race inspired really really awesome cars and i just love i mean i just love the the whole 60s style and what's so crazy is to the outside world the 60s vws are no different than the 50s and we know as vw enthusiasts the 60s are completely different than the 50s you know Mm -hmm. and so that that it's always interesting to to compare and contrast the dynamics of what vw was doing when the rest of the world was constantly changing models and whatnot so to ask you a question because you know the podcast is about you and i'm and i'm just getting some information about you so other than a volkswagen what car what car do you like like if you could buy another car had the room for another car what car would it be? Uh, I, I i so i tried the uh the hot truck thing i think a porsche would be uh would be kind of nice uh yeah. <laughs> a porsche 911 would be nice but I think before a Porsche 911, before an early 911, um, I think I want a Buick Riviera. Uh, <laughs> 60, we talked about it before yeah. you started your podcast for a few minutes. Uh, you happen to have one, and that's the car I want, a 65 uh, Riviera. We'd what? be totally stuck from the outside. There's nothing. This car is absolutely perfect uh, the way it came out of the factory. You just need to lower them and just... Uh, a nice set of wheels and you're in business and that's what i like to to have you know well and and you know i listen i'll give you my two cents on buicks i believe the buick riviera line from 63 to 68 Mm -hmm. are factory custom cars absolutely yep they did so much to buicks i could go on for 20 minutes about buicks um but it's just like it was the gentleman's hot rod it was a fast car that was luxury. It was just below the Cadillac. Actually, the Riviera, when they when they relaunched the Buick Riviera, it was actually Buick's Project X715, and it was slated to be the Cadillac LaSalle and mm-hmm. Cadillac because in the late 50s, Cadillac sales were booming. They ditched the project, and Buick picked it up. And that's how the Riviera, they brought the Riviera name back in 1963. But, you know, how I got into Rivieras, it's funny because I got I got into my Riviera when I blew up my bug. You know, I had a 
I had a 63 rag top that I saved from the junkyard and I finally working and driving this car and working and driving the car. I finally got the motor finished and I built a 20, 23, uh, 20, 2276 super flow heads, uh, 48s close ratio trans. And I take it out and I blew the motor up. And back then this was 1996. And so I blew the motor up. I was really frustrated. The car was 95% complete and I was so upset and I used to do car audio at the time. I did stereo systems and alarm systems and things like that. And I subscribed being a magazine guy to car stereo review and in car stereo review, 1992 issue of car stereo review. I still have it here. It's all torn up except for the pictures of Jimmy Ray Vaughn's lime green 63 Riviera. I didn't know what it was. I saw it in the magazine. I said, I'm going to get one of those cars. And lo and behold, I, after I blew my bug up, I was driving around in Vegas, and I remember seeing one in a, in a friend of mine's neighborhood in a driveway. So I just went to the guy's house, knocked on the door, and said, hey, I want to buy the car in your driveway. How much do you want for it? He says, well, uh, you know, I can get it started for you, and let's check it out. So I bought it. It was the most I'd ever paid for a car. It was $1,200. And, uh, and I've had that car since 1996. And it was, it was my car to get away from Volkswagens. And, you know, I was like, I'm getting a real car and I'm getting this, I'm getting that. And now I own way more Volkswagens than I do Buicks. I just have the one Buick. And I love the Buick because of that part in time in my life. And I have a problem selling them. But I tell you, they're, they're awesome cars. I, and, and that's my thing. Like with cars, I appreciate all different, all different makes, models, genres and, and year splits and all these different things because there's so much about every car. And it's funny because I always feel so comfortable in a Volkswagen, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. It's, it's also about the people, you know, when I tried the hot rod thing is I found out that it was a, either a lot of older people, uh, you know, with their street rods more than hot rods. Right. Uh, or there were younger people's, you know, with, and I just, you know, I just didn't quite fit with them. I, I just feel feel comfortable being with VW guys because VW guys are really everybody. There's not a. I mean, it's if you look at the population in the U.S., you'll find uh, an example of anybody in 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 the VW scene. I don't, I don't know if you know what I'm saying, but oh yeah, yeah, it's a it's, it's a really real, everybody, a real diversified group. I mean, a lot of diversity and not a lot of egos. And, you know, I have, a, I have a, we, was t- we were talking earlier before the podcast, I was talking to you about, I have a 1990 Celine Fox body Mustang. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. I had, I mean, I had one in probably 98. I had a 90 and, uh, I was into the Mustang thing for a little bit, driving a fast street car, but the Mustang guys are totally different. Like it's, it's, it's a group of guys, but they're not like VW guys, just like you're saying, you know, so you go to that crowd and you're like. Ah, these guys are a little bit different. My friends that I met through Volkswagens, I'm mm-hmm. still friends with all of them today. You know what I mean? Like, like long-term good friends, and people that I've met with other car stuff, we don't really see each other that much. Don't have we, the only thing we had in common was really the car, and then not much other than that. So it's interesting, but I, I know exactly what you mean, and that and that's why. You know, and that's the reason I do the podcast is because every one of us connects with the, with with other people, and and to figure out how to bring us all together, I think makes such a huge 
difference and and able to have this conversation and share. So now we're back to talking about you again. So as an automotive journalist, and we're going to talk specifically about photography, how come photography, how come guys that shoot for the magazine can take such better pictures than I can? <laughs> how come? <laughs> and it's just the angle well, I of guess the light, it's, 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 you know? It, it's, it's like, uh, it's like any, any trade, I guess. It's experience. Um, you know, the, the way I see the, the work I'm doing, it's, 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 it's not as artistic as some people think it is. Um, because, you know, in the end, what you need to do is you need to bring back a three-quarter front picture of the car, a three-quarter back picture, a picture of the interior, a picture of the engine. So it's not quite a commercial uh, type of work, but it's, it's semi-commercial, you know. It, yeah. it's, but, 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 but still, you need to uh, understand photography. You need to understand backgrounds and uh, how it all works out, you know. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> so let me so I'm gonna ask you some questions. So, what are some of your pet peeves that really bother you in automotive photography? What are some things that just look at a picture and it just gets on your nerves? What's your biggest pet peeve when it comes to looking at people's photographs? Um, I don't know. Just the top of my head here, I just saw recently some uh, some features with really back uh, reflection on the on the side of the car. You know, you got to. A nice VW, and uh, all of a sudden on the side of the the car, you can see a reflection of a, of a Toyota Celica <laughs> or something, you know. So yeah. that, that that that's one of them. And then um, also sometimes, you know, you, photographers should try a little bit harder to find good locations. I, I pride myself in spending probably more time than a lot of photographers looking for interesting locations. And it's really the hardest part of what I'm doing is trying to find nice backgrounds because you know you can just take a car and, and take a picture on the street and it might not be as nice as if you spend you know an hour and a half trying to find an interesting background so even if you're not the best photographer you should at least you know maybe if you're not the best photographer spend some time looking for a cool location you know well and so let me ask this question so if someone's going to get the if, if someone's coming to you're going to a town for a show. Somebody knows you're coming. You're going to shoot their car for the magazine. What type? What's a good idea for a good background? I mean, what's some good understanding? If someone's coming and you're going to shoot their car, they've got a couple locations scouted for you. What type of things do you look for? It, it, it all really all depends. Uh, Sometimes when I shoot for European magazines, I try to find some backgrounds which are very typical of SoCal. You know, think sometimes beach if you can access sure. the beach, which is real difficult. Palm trees, of course, or even any type of greeneries which do not exist or are pretty fairly uncommon in Europe. Um, but overall, I, since we're talking about old VWs, it's always cool to find some old buildings that goes with uh, with the, the cars. You know, same, not necessarily the same era, but you know, for example, a week ago I went to. Um, uh, to Virginia uh, for Burgout, which was yeah. a great event. And uh, I um, ended up um, in a city called Petersburg, and downtown Petersburg has a bunch of old uh, industrial buildings, brick buildings with old paintings and all that stuff. And, yeah. and uh, for me, it was heaven because finally I found you know a place where I had multiple choices for locations. And for me, that that's great because sometimes I can struggle for an hour and a half and 
come up with uh, one location which is going to be kind of crappy, you know. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, there is no, no real rule, but overall I very often try to find locations which, uh, which are, uh, you know, m- match the, uh, the vintage uh, of, the, of, the, of the vehicles I'm shooting, you know. So the vintage of the vehicle or if it's a car that's really futuristic looking, maybe something that has a futuristic vibe. Or if a car is Absolutely. kind of, kind of a, a let's say like a a patina car, maybe a patina car shot in a wrecking yard or some, you know what I mean? Something that kind of fits the theme of the car. You're thinking? Yep. So, yeah, 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 yeah. For example, when I went to Virginia, I shot uh, uh, Crooker's uh, 11 second bus. It's, oh, yeah. a, it's a panel bus. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know the bus. World's fastest Super bus. Super fast quality. Yeah, it's a panel. I think it's a 60. Uh, something like that 60 anyway it's got a huge turbo in the in the back and um so uh you know i shot the car in front or the bus in front of, uh, of an old industrial building with some cool paintings and it kind of went great you know they we have you had a car with a great patina and the building had the same patina too you know yeah no absolutely and so what are what's your if you had to pick like your top two favorite cars that you shot now, whether it's based on location or what you did or what the car was, what cars come to memory to you as some of your favorite cars that you've shot? Uh, you know, I'm my, I'm my worst enemy because when I look at some of my, my, the photos I took even 10 years ago, I'm very critical and I always see the wrong thing. So, you know, there are cars like the Hebrod. I don't know if you remember the Hebrod. The yeah. Hebrod? But, yeah, it yeah. was built uh, by Jeff, my buddy Jeff Peterson in, in Canada, yeah. and uh, that, that car was very special. It's a, it's basically a, think about it um, as a hot rod without fenders, but uh, based on the VW Bug, and the back is a Headmiller. So anyway, uh, that that was you know pretty cool car to photograph, for example, and I found some pretty cool locations. But now I look at the picture and says, oh look, at, I forgot to Photoshop some of the oil spots on the ground and stuff like that. So so it's really uh, an ever-evolving, uh, you know, my choices always evolve over the years. So it's really hard for me to tell you which is would be my, my favorite car I have photographed, honestly. So what are, your summer, what are some of your more memorable cars that you've, that you've shot, whether it be the location or have you ever had any sketchy situations where you were photographing a car where you guys shouldn't have been and, and you had just a few seconds to get some pictures and get out of there, or... Yeah, yeah. The, the, recently, about a year ago, I shot a bus uh, just next to the Huntington Beach Pier. And it was totally hectic, because even though you don't see it in the pictures, uh, that place was absolutely massively packed with people. So I really struggled to take the pictures, and uh, also, you know, it's always a worry to to know if a cop is going to show up or, you know, a security person, if you, you know, if you choose, a, for example, whatever parking lot, private parking lot, you know, you, you'll, you'll more likely have somebody uh, like a security guard come and book, book you out, you know. Yeah. Um, so, that, you know, that, that bus, for example, was kind of challenging to photograph. Um, yeah, it, overall, it's uh, it, it happens fairly often that I get, booted out from uh, one location or another, you know, because it's, uh, and sometimes it's just, you end up having just angry people uh, who live in the neighborhood and they're mad at you because you're 
you know, you're taking uh, too much of that space, I guess. You right, know? you're blocking the street or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even though I'm really careful, I'm, I'm very polite with everybody, and I'm trying to accommodate everybody, but then again, I need to do my job, too, you know? No, absolutely. And what what's your favorite... So, uh, me personally, and I'm not leading you on the question, but I'm telling you, what, like me personally, my favorite... My favorite cover scenes on the magazines are always a multiple car garage scene, car mm-hmm. wash scene, or something where there's like a lot going on. What, what? So that's like for me, like those are my favorite covers. What is some of your favorite covers or styles of photographs that you like to see? For cover, you mean overall? What's my favorite? What would be my favorite background? Yeah. Um, first of all, I do prefer taking pictures in the uh, late afternoon uh, because usually the uh, the light is softer and you don't have those big shadows and those big big uh, big spots on the car. You know, when when you got a bright bright sun, usually you have those 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 marks or those spots on the on the on the body of the car. Right. Um, so late afternoon would be better, and just you know, you, you got to be careful with the, with the cover because it needs to be fairly simple. Because you know, uh, uh, then otherwise you're going to get a really busy background, and then you add the titles and you add the name of the magazine. So it's uh, it's a lot to to look at. So for a cover, the 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 most it has to be fairly simple. It, it just needs to be you know. A matching a color that matches the uh, the car and or that goes well with the car and it needs to be fairly simple maybe with just some greenery some palm trees or something like that i always like using palm trees yeah the kind of it's the essence of the california the california idea you know because really what you're selling is an idea a lifestyle an experience oh yeah you know and I think that's uh, that's the reason why someone grabs the magazine. Like, you grab it because it, it that cover art looks so good. You want to see what what else is there, and you don't have the time in front of the newsstand to sit there and flip through the pages, or you just like the photograph that much. So, I mean, I think that's uh, that's a that's a pretty awesome uh, thing when you when you've got a magazine that makes you stop what you're doing and grab the mm-hmm. magazine, you know, running through the airport and you see it and you're like, oh, I'm taking this one with me. So now, um, you've published a few books. Tell me about the books that you published. So there is one called Demon Bugs, which was published by Motor Books, uh, one of the main publishers in the car industry, uh, back in 2008, I think, 2007, 2008. So it's been already a couple, uh, well, a dozen years ago. Yeah. And that, that's what I wanted to do something a little bit different because there are a bunch of books on the market uh, which are um, uh, specialize in the, um, or the theme is the uh, history of uh, VWs or VW, the history of, uh, of the Beatle and stuff like that. Uh, that book is a little bit different because it, it really celebrates everything that's uh, modified. So it can be Calook, it can be uh, turbo cars, it can be uh, slam buses, it can be a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, so that was about a dozen years ago, and at about the same time, um, I was approached by a Street VW magazines, um, Street VW's magazine uh, in, from Japan, and they uh, they wanted to do a book as well. So uh, that one is a soft uh, soft cover, and it's called the California Look Bible. 
So the theme is only uh, Calook. I'm a big Calook fan, and um, so I work with them on on that book as well. Nice. And so, if people want to get any of these books, uh, how many were in print on these books? Are they pretty. I mean, they're pretty rare. Um, you can still get demon books fairly easy. Um, you, you can go just to you can just visit Amazon, Amazon.com, and you'll find it there. Um, it's they always have some for sale, and uh, it's kind of funny because the price really very greatly can some of them are pretty cheap it might be 15 bucks for a used copy and and some of them are totally ridiculously priced at 400 dollars once in a while you end up having one uh, i think it's a fluke at 400 dollars but yeah. you, know, you can still still find the uh demon bugs which is in english uh, fairly easily and as far as the uh, the uh the Catholic bible california look bible that one is a bit more tricky uh, a bit trickier it's um, a bit harder to find um, it was published in Japan, as I said, 12 years ago. So uh, good luck finding one here in the U.S. Yeah, those those got snatched up pretty quick. Do you know how many were published? I have no idea. And even it's really weird with you know with the with demon bugs. I was never able to find out uh, how many books were published precisely. Which, really? Um, uh, yeah, we're not going to get into that. But a lot of. Uh, Authors have been complaining about the same thing because you know we're supposed to be paid on how many books are sure are paid. Well, yeah, it's like a musician; you get paid royalties for every song that they play, right? Exactly. So it's a. Uh, I know they uh, it, they had a second run, so I guess it, it it sold fairly well to to run a second run. But I couldn't tell you precisely how how many how many copies were sold. Hmm. Well, I know I have one, so uh, I bought one. <laughs> But now I'm on the lookout cool. for the California Look Bible. You know, you find, especially when you like, when you hear of books that are in print, they're difficult to find. That pushes the value up. So California Look Bible would probably go for more money because, you know, it wasn't produced here. It's making it more unique. And then limited run in Japan would mean everybody in Japan snatched them up, you know. Yep. So, well, there's very little speaking uh, written in English. That might be a... An issue for for some of the uh, the readers in the U.S., but it's, it's still still pretty cool book. So maybe there's an opportunity for you to publish a U.S. version of it, or I mean, I guess there's there's a California look guide that's out now, but why not another one? Who knows? You never know. I, what I, I, what I did want to ask you about specifically was your bug. What's the specs on your bug? So I do have a uh, I do have a bug. It's a 57 oval window, and um, I'm I'm part of that club known as DKP, which you might have heard of. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been part of the club since 1993 for over 25 years. Oh, wow. So it's a, it's a, it's a traditional catalog bug that was built back uh, in 83, 84. Um, so it's, a, it's one of the um, few uh, original catalog bugs left, I guess, uh, in SoCal. And, um, yeah, it's been part of my life for the last 25 years. And, uh, over 25 years. And so it, it's, did you pick that car up from a previous club member? Yes. Um, when I moved to, uh, to SoCal back in 1992, one of my goals was whenever I would get enough money was to, to buy a, uh, a rack top, an oval rack top. Yeah. And um, eventually I ended up hanging out with some of the guys from DKP already back then. Mm -hmm. The third generation of the club started back in 1990, so it was still, still fairly fresh. And um, one day, my buddy Bill Schwimmer called me and said, hey, um, I know you're looking for Oval Racked Up, and uh, one of the members is ready to sell his car. Are you interested? And so, of course I was, and I, I bought that car. I bought it without the engine, without uh, the, the wheels, which were real BRMs. Mm -hmm. 
Oh wow! And uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at the uh, the cover of the 1990, I think it's February 1990. Uh, hold on, I got it here. It's uh, September 1990. Um, there is a lineup of cars with all of them with real BRMs. Uh, back then, there were no fake BRMs. They yeah. were all real BRMs. So there's a lineup of DKP cars on the cover, and one of the cars is, uh, is my car. So it's, uh, it's that white oval window. So when you bought it, it had the real BRMs, or you had to track down the real BRMs? No. Um, well, first of all, I didn't have the budget to buy the car with the BRMs. Yeah. That was one issue. And the other issue is they all were they were cracked. Uh, all of them were cracked. And that's the major issue that people have with the BRMs, with the real BRMs. You know, they're made of magnesium, and uh, a lot of them are cracked. Um, yeah, so take... you can fix them. You can fix them, but it's real difficult. So uh, I... I, I ended up buying one of the very, very first sets of uh, Fat 4 BRMs, and uh, I was quite, uh, uh, I got my hairs full from some of the club members back then, because, you know, you were supposed to use uh, real real wheels, uh, you know, vintage wheels. And, right. But eventually I got them polished and uh, redone, and they almost looked like the real deal. So um, they, everybody was fine with it eventually, and uh, nowadays everybody runs those wheels, so it's not an issue anymore. Yeah, what's what's funny is I remember reading an article about the dangers of owning real BRMs, where a guy broke his arm airing up the tire because the lip blew on the on the BRM and he injured himself. Oh. And you know, sometimes working with these old magnesium wheels, they're cool and they're super lightweight, but the reality is they're they can they can be kind of dangerous and unsafe sometimes, and that's the reason the technology's evolved into you know cast aluminum wheels. So yeah, as a matter of fact, one of my buddies got hurt. Uh was not with the BRMs. The, the, the issue with the, uh, the wheel exploding when you put air in them, uh, that would, was probably more likely an MP5 spoke. Yeah, the 5 spoke they're, was. They're, yeah, they, they are two-piece wheels, and um, geez, I guess yeah, he almost lost two fingers uh, just uh, putting air in the, um, in the tire, you know. Yeah. No, you got to be careful. So I, 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 eventually, I also bought an engine from, uh, from one of the DKP guys, uh, 2110, which uh, evolved over the, over time, you know. It's it's twenty two seventy six now and twenty two seventy six. Ron Fleming said there's only one size motor, twenty three thirty two. It's two point three liter. They're right, all two point right. three liters, more or less. You know, twenty two seventy six, twenty three thirty two. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, a quick, uh, you know, a, you know, typical engine for for Calibug, I guess. Nowadays. And what's the and fast? It, and what's the fastest you've ran that car? Quarter mile. The car runs 1368 on the radials and with the uh, the muffler, so it's not the fastest car in the in the club. But yeah, I could make the car run faster. But I'm done. I'm, I'm the done faster you go, the more you break. The more you break, and yeah, I don't have the budget really to uh, to fix uh, the car. You know, if it breaks, so I. Yeah, I've I've done a, I've raced pretty much everywhere back in the nineties. Uh, um, yeah, Carlsbad, Pomona, um, Irwindale, all the pretty much all the uh, all the tracks. Any um, County Raceway, which is no more as well. So I've yeah. raced all over the place, and um, yeah, as I said, it's not the fastest cars, but it's still fast enough where it's I think it's stupid fast, really. So. Well, listen, I know it's a, I know it's a clean car. So will you be driving that car this weekend when you're going out to Cars and Coffee at Hot VWs on Saturday? I will not drive it on Saturday for a simple reason is that I got to cover a muscle car event just after uh, Cars and Coffee. So 
I don't want to leave the bug in the regular parking lot in the muscle car event uh, yeah. after cars and coffee. So I'm going to drive uh, another car, you know, in the morning. But you'll see that um, at El Prado on Sunday. Um, as a matter of fact, it's kind of cool. Hot VW is going to have a, um, a, a little display with four cars. So there will be the owner of the company, Shin Mukai, will have his uh, racing Type 3 there. Yeah. Uh, Shin Watanabe, the editor, is going to have his famous 58 uh, bug there. Yeah, um, I'm going to have my own. Yep. Uh, I'm going to have my oval window. And uh, the um, the ad ad manager, Eddie, is going to have his high roof bus. So we're going to have all the four cars next to the booth. Uh, oh, very cool. Year. Well, good deal. Yeah. So so then if people are out this weekend, they're going to see you at Prado on Saturday. You'll be at Cars and Coffee early in the morning, but you've got another event to shoot after that. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing you this weekend and chatting. Um, so if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how do they get in touch with you, Stefan? I think the best way... You can contact me through uh, through Facebook. Um, if uh, not by Facebook, by uh, by email. Email is fairly easy. It's stsphoto at earthlink.net. That's stsphoto at earthlink.net. Um, I'm somewhat uh, busy on Instagram, but not that much. I think uh, I hope I don't know if everybody's on Facebook. Probably not, but uh, well. Facebook is. A yeah, Facebook's the easy way to get a hold of people now. And if and if somebody wanted to have you shoot their car and just just hire you to shoot their car and do a photo shoot with their car, would you do that absolutely. for someone as well? Yeah, absolutely. I'll 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 be happy to do that as well. They can hire me for uh, for some some pictures, and they'll have the uh, you know I can spend an afternoon with them shooting their cars, and um, they they pay me a fee and they own the pictures afterwards. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, well. Listen, I'm glad we got the chat on the podcast for a little bit. You know, I've learned a lot about you, a lot about your history. And I definitely, this won't be the last time we'll have you on here. I'd like to get you on and we might talk about some, some other things in the near future. But uh, anything else you wanted to leave us with before we wrap up the podcast? No, that's pretty much it. It was kind of a very interesting, uh, interesting experience. Uh, thanks for doing that. Um, yeah, look for the tour guy at the event. You can't really miss it. The six five, uh, six five tour guy. The six five uh, French with guy camera with the camera. The, yeah, with the camera on the neck. That that would be me. So uh, say hello next time you see well, me. Well, St uh, Stefan, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I've admired your work for a long time, and uh, I look forward to seeing you this weekend. But I'm also excited that I learned a lot and got to know you a little bit more better on the podcast, and hopefully a lot of other people will get to hear this and and get to feel like they get to know you a little bit better. So, hey, I, I know you're one of the hardcore enthusiasts, and it, and it shows in the photographs you take and the work that you do. And, uh, again, man, I, I appreciate all you do for the VW scene, and you're one of the reasons why it's still going strong. So thanks for all the awesome pictures you take and all the history that you've documented. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing this weekend, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Very cool. Thank you. All right. I, hey, I appreciate it, and I'll see you this weekend. See you this weekend. All right, buddy. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have a